Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free. Hundreds of conversations with writers including George Saunders, Jonathan Franzen, Roxanne Gay, Celeste Ng, Susan Orlean, Hilton Owls. Who else? Lots. It's all available for free. If you want to support the show, throw a few bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It is also very helpful if you go to iTunes and rate and review the program. Can you do that? Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have like a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really it's beautiful. Like it's what a struggle, you know? It's incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Bradley just one person and just one person. Hey, everybody. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People program. This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. Juliet Escoria is back on the program for a second time. She has a debut novel out from Melville House. It is called Juliet the Maniac, and it's one of the buzzier titles of 2019. It's a harrowing work of autofiction that explores the impact of mental illness on an adolescent girl, if that's a way of putting it. So, great talk with Juliet Escoria coming up in just a second. I should mention, too, that Juliet the Maniac was the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club a couple of months ago. And typically, and the NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It's been around since 2006. It has its own monthly book club. You sign up, you get a book. I interview book club authors on this program. And typically, I will interview them in the month which corresponds with their feature. But uh, in this case, I waited for Juliet to get out here to Southern California on tour so we could sit down in person, and it was well worth the wait. That conversation is coming up. A listener named John writes, Man, that's how he starts his letter. Man, comma, I just discovered your show a week ago at most. I've been binge listening. Yesterday I happened upon the Cool AD episode, which was a surprise. I like his music a lot. You mentioned obituary listening, and it hit me a bit. It's what I've been doing since Wednesday. David Berman is dead. 
I'd suggest listening to Purple Mountains, his last project, and Silver Jew's whole catalog because it's good. His music is often sad, and I think peeling back some layers and just embracing that window into sadness makes us better people. Don't take the sadness as far as he did, obviously, but do take a taste of it. It's beautiful. Love the show, man. Keep it up. Signed, John. So, yeah, I like that term, obituary listening. And I think you can extend it, like obituary reading. It's just like obituary appreciation, where somebody dies and, you know, it really intensifies your feelings of affection and appreciation. I think social media is a big component uh, to this, like Twitter grief or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, last week was heavy. We lost Toni Morrison, whose stature in the culture as a writer of literary fiction is unrivaled. She's as towering a figure in American letters as we've ever produced. I think she's right up there with like Mark Twain. She might be at the very top. I don't get into rankings, but it's, it's hard to argue that she is not way up there in the pantheon. And what a life well lived, 88 years old, Nobel laureate and a body of work that will surely stand the test of time and which had a monumental positive impact. So there you have like obituary reading. Suddenly I'm like, Oh God, got to go buy every Toni Morrison book. And then David Berman, who, you know, I was kind of moved by the outpouring of grief, the intensity of it, because he is less of a towering figure in the culture. You know, like Toni Morrison, she's got her portrait in the natural or in the national portrait gallery. Uh, Former presidents were, you know, making public expressions of grief when she died. But David Berman is, you know, he's kind of like an indie rock god out on the periphery. And I knew that his work was uh, deeply appreciated, but I didn't realize the degree to which it was. And I don't think he did either, frankly, which is heartbreaking. And so, yeah, you get into obituary listening. I was playing that music in my kitchen the day he died. And I got to say it, I got choked up. He was a real poet in, uh, in his music. He was a major talent and a really uh, troubled guy. There's a lot of sadness in his work and in his life, clearly, and he lost the battle. So what it makes me think of, all of it, is uh, uh, this idea of appreciation. If you like somebody's books or you like their poetry or you like their music or whatever it is, uh, write a thank you note. Write a note of appreciation and tell them, even if it's just on like a Twitter or something. Like, ideally, it's a handwritten note just because there's a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit more personal and soulful, but just let people know. Who doesn't like to hear that sort of thing? And I guess it makes me wonder if, like, you know, maybe if we did a better job of that kind of uh, epistolary appreciation, like offering of appreciation... Maybe it might help keep people around and keep them making art because they would realize the impact that they're having and the value of their existence. 
And it's just good manners when you think about it. So I got to be better about it. I went through a phase a couple of years ago, like right after the election when, or whatever you want to call it, when Trump, uh, took the Oval Office, I sort of checked out of social media and just like went on this like binge of writing handwritten thank you notes. It's like maybe the most mentally healthy I've been in my adult life. <laughs> Certainly since the uh, advent of social media. Maybe I'll get back to it. So, uh, Tony Morrison and David Berman rest in peace. Oh, wait. Did you hear that? That's my uh, automatic vacuum cleaner. I've got like a robot vacuum cleaner and it's set on a timer and it just turned on. Listen to that. It's vacuuming my room. I love it. Her name is Yuffie. They actually have a name for uh, these robotic vacuum cleaners. And I have like sincere affection. <laughs> I have sincere affection for her. So the noise you hear is my uh, robot friend, Yuffie. Okay, so let's get to the show, shall we? Let's get to the conversation with Juliet Escoria. Her debut novel is called Juliet the Maniac, the official May pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, available from Melville House. This is Juliet Escoria. It's kind of funny why that people are so obsessed with categorization um, and like kind of knowing what label to put on things which seems strange to me i also feel like we don't always do that like with poetry no one asked me like are you is this true or not when i wrote a poetry book but for some reason you have more pages and more words and people like want to know what it is but i didn't really think about it too much in the moment of it um like when i was like writing it, it was just kind of always seemed to be a novel to me for whatever reason i think i like reading novels more and I like writing when I'm telling myself it's fiction more. Um, I mean, all the facts in the book, like the basic kind of outline of the events is true, um, but it's certainly like a novel. Like there's too much made up to call it a memoir. Well, one of the things I uh, read I read you say in an interview, um, a print interview, is that by writing it as a novel you didn't have the pressure on you to create some kind of lesson or point, mm -hmm. which yeah. tends to be like a, a feature of the memoir. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I might have kind of like a closed in opinion about memoirs um, or just perception of them, but I do feel like a memoir implies that like you kind of like learn something. And I mean, I did definitely learn something by my experiences, but that wasn't what I was interested in writing about. What I was writing, wanting to write about was just kind of like, what it was like to be a teenager and just be like completely overwhelmed and like not know what is going on and just like kind of feeling attacked by yourself. And that was like really disorienting. So that seemed interesting to write about. So having some sort of lesson there seemed to like kind of like erase the point if I was like pressured to put a lesson on it. Yeah. I've been wrestling with this myself. Um, and I, I'm hesitant to be too assertive about my current opinions because they, they're so fluid. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but I wrestle with this idea because I've been trying to write uh, a quote unquote memoir or maybe like autofiction. And I'm like, sort of like, I don't want to write another victim narrative mm -hmm. where I'm the hero. Yeah. And I, and I triumph. Like, I don't feel like that. 
Well, and it's like not, I mean, at least in my experience of like difficult things is there's not like an easy opinion to come around to and you feel different about it in different years. And I mean, like I think about the treatment that I had, some of it was terrible, some of it was wonderful, but I think that the majority of the people who like worked with me were just trying their best with what they had at the time. Um, so I mean, like kind of trying to come up with some sort of hypothesis about it seems pointless to me. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that you're like, one of the reasons your book is so harrowing to read and the subject matter and the, um, you know, the particular time period you describe as well, because you're, you're like a child, you mm -hmm. know? It's, it's, yeah. it makes it even more harrowing. But something that I relate to just as a parent of a disabled child is like when you get into the medical industrial complex, mm -hmm. Uh, with something that's com that's complex yeah. and difficult um, to diagnose and to treat, you realize pretty quickly that the experts don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, they really don't. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I just read Mind Fixers, um, which is about, like I think, maybe the subtitle is something like the biological search for um, the cause of mental illness. That's not it, but something like that. And they really don't know anything. Like, they know a lot more than they did in the 90s and then obviously prior to that, but they still don't know what the hell they're doing. And yeah. they still have so few options of, like, how to treat people. And so much of it requires money and time and, like, getting lucky in terms of who you're able to see. So it's just kind of frustrating that they just don't know. They don't know anything about the human brain. It's too complicated. Well, and like you say, there's also a disparity in terms of access, mm -hmm. you know, like they're not all doctors are created. Equal. Yeah. Yeah, for like, sure. Like bedside manner, intellect, like that's, that's something that like, I think maybe for most average healthy people, you more or less take it for granted that anybody who gets through medical school and who might be your general practitioner can function in their job. And I guess for like a routine checkup, there's not, yeah. that, there's not that much differentiation but man, when you have a, like a life-threatening illness, you start to think a lot harder about like, well, who, where'd, where'd you study? Yeah. <laughs> and like, what's your, what's your approach to this type of thing? And uh, like, I feel one thing that they don't really talk about is you get better at accessing the quality of care the longer you're kind of in the mental health system, or I'd imagine the physical health system and there's no real way to like be taught those skills of like how to kind of fill a doctor out and how to make therapy work for you and so it's only like through trial and error like now like i had when i was going through the draft of the book i realized i had like issues still regarding my teenage self and i was like i really need to address this before i like publish this book so i was like i'm gonna go to therapy for a few months and i was able to find a therapist where i went to her for like two or three months and like it fixed the problem that I was feeling. Okay. I want to stop you there because yeah. you said a couple of things that are interesting. The first was that you have to sort of learn when you're in the process, like in the mental or the, you know, mental health yeah. system, you have to learn how to get the therapy you need from a therapist. Yeah. What does that mean in practice? I mean, like I, like there's all sorts of different approaches. Um, and like CBT is like offered pretty commonly, like cognitive behavioral therapy and that's really good. I feel like if you've never been to therapy before and like you're kind of just having issues with how you perceive things and how you deal with things. Um, but for me, CBT always felt like super judgmental. So that's kind of like a warning flag. Like I don't want to do CBT. Well, how does and it judge you? 
It just felt like instead of acknowledging your feelings, they wanted to like correct them. Like, oh, this feeling you're having is wrong. We must correct it. And that's not, I don't think what CBT is intended for, but that's how it felt to me. Um, and then of course there's like, what I felt like I needed was someone who would like sit and let me blather and then occasionally like say something insightful. And so, I mean, like that's really kind of a specific thing to want from a therapist. So I like, and I don't think you, people know to ask the therapist questions before you make the appointment, like to say, what's your approach? Like, what do you do? Blah. Um, and a lot of people don't even think to do that. And so when I called this woman, she was like a hippy dippy woman, which is like what I figured I needed was like some woman who would tell me like, go sit in the woods or something. She's actually at the beginning of Scott's book, Hill William, but that's like a caricature of her. She Scott had, like, McClanahan, your yeah, husband, yes. the writer. Yeah. Like in the scenes with her, she had like a lot of turquoise jewelry and told him to like, go sit in near the river and like talk to his inner child or something. And I was like, that's the type of therapy I need right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> that sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and the other thing too, is like, uh, there's approach, there's uh, you know, methodology, there's whatever your educational background is as a therapist, but then there's also just that kind of ineffable, uh, ineffable, mysterious, like personality mm -hmm. meshing thing. Like you have to find somebody that you click with and who, with whom you can communicate fluidly, who sort of, you got to get each other. Yeah, exactly. And you have to like respect them and feel like they respect you. Cause I've been to therapists who were probably good, but I felt like they were like judging me. Um, and so that doesn't work. Like if you think that someone's like thinking you're a bad person, do you ever get into gamesmanship in therapy? I would imagine this was maybe something you would have a tendency to do more as an adolescent where like you're, you're a really intelligent person. Um, your test scores are through the roof. <laughs> um, At least Juliet's are the character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, you're, you're sharp and, uh, perceptive obviously. And, um, you know, you have a good poker face. Like, did you ever get into a room with therapists and, you know, you start to play games with like outsmarting them or feeling, I think sometimes too, feeling like you're smarter than the therapist, which maybe in like a, maybe there's some truth to it in kind of like a basic intelligence quotient kind of way. But there's also like the hubris of being mm -hmm. like, I'm smarter than this person yeah. who has done all this studying and. Well, I mean, I learned that you can't do that if you actually want the therapy to be effective. Um, and so, like, why would you spend the money on time and therapy if you don't want it to be effective? But certainly as, like, a teenager, a younger person, like, I had a very set script that I would tell my psychiatrist about my alcohol consumption. Like, I'd say, oh, I have two to three drinks two or three times a week, which was a complete lie. But that was, like, the thing that I told her that worked. And so that's what I'd always say, like, every time I saw her. Um, because, you know, if you tell them the truth, they're not going to want to treat you or they're just going to tell you, you need to quit using stuff. Um, so that way, and then as like a teenager, I just kind of wanted to get out of there. So you just say like what you thought they wanted to hear. Well, and also like, there's like, it's not like you're saying you're abstaining, mm -hmm. which is hard to believe. Yeah. And it just, and then you're not saying like, I only have two a week. Yeah. You sort of found a sweet spot. Yes. Where it's like borderline <laughs> binge drinking, but not quite. So they're not going to tell you to stop, but you're still drinking. So like this is auto fiction. It allows you to play some, you don't feel like a fidelity to every single fact, which by the way, nobody can remember anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people I would imagine in response to reading the book, as you go around touring, are, are you getting a lot of people coming up to you and just like assuming certain parts of the book that are actually fiction 
are nonfiction and assuming things about you as a result? Have you dealt with that? Not really, because like I said, the facts are all true. It's just kind of like the details. I've had people like ask me really specific questions of like, did that actually happen? Like one guy, he was amazing um, when we were in Ann Arbor. He was like asking really specific questions of like, did your dad really give you fear and loathing in Las Vegas? And that part was true. He did <laughs> give me fear and loathing in Las Vegas on my way to boarding school. Um, so it's mostly kind of like the details and the minor facts that I made up. Um, but I have had a lot of like, like, question and answer sessions or interviews where it felt almost like therapy <laughs> and it's like should i be paying you for this and then also this feels like kind of inappropriate but i don't really care but this is also emotionally draining but i don't really care um so that type of thing and I, but i do think you are opening yourself up to that to those types of questions and conversations when you write about that type of thing so it just comes with the territory it touches a nerve yeah yeah i think, I think a lot of, i think almost everybody feels some connectivity like who's really well mm -hmm. who's who's well, th fully psychologically healthy even like normal people are weird like i had this roommate who i thought was like totally normal but she like picked the hairs out of her knees like the trichotillomania or whatever and i was like okay if this girl seems like so normal to me and she's like giving herself scabs like nobody's normal like no. and that's i mean i appreciate the questions even if they're draining sometimes because i do think people should just be more open about no one is like normal like everyone has some sort of weird anxiety or neuroses or something yeah so, i mean i feel like i i mean on paper i think i would be pretty norm core like you know relatively but like yet i feel like to maintain mood and productivity like i have to exercise mm -hmm. a lot and like, it's pretty crazy to live with me. Like if I don't get it, like look out. Yeah. And like, that's not normal. Yeah. I relate to that. Cause I feel pretty normal nowadays, but like I need a lot of maintenance and the maintenance sometimes you're just like, why do I have to do all this shit to just like behave like a normal person? Right. But it's like necessary and keeps me functioning and keeps me like, you know, like a quote normal person. Well, and I think I wrestle, I think in your case, because of your uh, medical history, maintenance is more easily justifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, but like for me, sometimes I struggle. I'm like, am I being selfish? <laughs> like, you know, I don't want to be like uh, one of these selfish, like preening dicks who's got to like do all this stuff for himself before he can tend to his family. But like, I also subscribe to that, like uh, metaphorical notion that like you have to give yourself oxygen yeah. first. I mean, you're not going to be as good a dad or a husband if you're cranky because you didn't get to do like your running or whatever exercise it is you and do. like a mani-pedi. I mean, yeah. I just need, <laughs> need to take care of me. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's like, I guess it's just like, where's the line? And I just want to, I'm always like sort of like tuned into that. Like, I don't want to like become ridiculous with mm -hmm. it, but like, and like, I will, if like, if it's like, oh my God, we got to be somewhere at nine o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning, like I'll set my alarm and get up at five. Yeah. So, so I you can, can have the time. Well, and I mean, they always are talking about how balance is the key to things. So it sounds like you're balancing your family and your work and uh, yourself. So I'm not picking the hairs out of my knees. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Uh, so this feels like, and I don't mean to like be ridiculous or oversimplify things, but it does feel like the book you had to write. Yeah, for sure. Like for you, sure. You had to write this like one. Like that, if I had died without writing that book, the ghost of me would be like really upset about it. So, so. I get this. Okay. So the question is, how long have you been thinking about writing this book? I thought it started when I was in grad school, but apparently it started before that because Victoria Patterson, um, she was my teacher as an undergrad and she told me somewhat recently that I had like told her about this book. So I guess it goes 
back till at least like 2007. I love Tori. Yeah, she's great. She's so great. Yeah, she's a good human. And where did you go to grad school again? I went to Brooklyn College. Oh, you did? Yes. She taught you there? No, no. She taught me for my undergrad program at UC Riverside. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so all the way back to then. Yes. These yeah. things incubate for a while. Yes. So what was it that then made it time to actually get down to the business of it? I just didn't know how to approach it. Um, cause I mean, it almost felt like writing science fiction or something where you're creating this world or not even creating it, but just trying to convey this world that's like our world, but has like different realities and different rules. And so you can't just like it's difficult to kind of figure out how to structure that. Um, and I also had like ideas on what it should look like. Like I, I originally saw it as more traditional novel and that was just like not working. So it was trial and error and like putting it aside and realizing I wasn't good enough of a writer to write it right then. And I needed to like wait until I was capable of doing what I wanted to do. Um, even though it's hard to be patient. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. See, that's the problem with me. I'm not a good enough writer yet to write the book that I'm well, chewing on. I also felt like I taught myself how to write it as I went. So well, do you think that, okay, so is it, is it, was it just bullshit? Were you just procrastinating? Telling no, yourself that you I tried. Like I did, my thesis was like a completely different version of it as well as some short stories for grad school. And then I wrote like it was a 99 or hundred exactly pages before I gave up on it a second time. And then I had a very crazy idea for the third time where it was going to cover my entire life. And I have no idea why I thought that was a good idea. But <laughs> <laughs> so I like wrote a bunch of stuff having to do with like my family history and my childhood. And then I was like, this is completely nuts. Like no one, this book would be like thousands of pages long. That's silly. Um, and so then finally it just sort of clicked. Um, when I just like was like, I'm not going to think about what I'm doing. I just have to like let it do what it seems to want to do, and then I'll figure it out later. So just kind of like throwing it up, thinking about each little section and how would I tell that section if I wasn't like trying to put some sort of like preconceived idea about what a book should do. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so I want to I want to ask a question about that, but first I want to ask you a little bit more about being ready to write the book. Mm -hmm. Like part of it, you said is that you had to understand, like uh, what you had to become a better writer, and you had to understand, I guess, what you you had to come to terms with how it was going to look and mm -hmm. be structured. What about like life wisdom and perspective and the time that you need to get to a place where you might have the clarity of vision and the strength of spirit 
to be able to look at this very painful, difficult stuff yeah. without becoming too emotional and mucking up the works. Like, was there any of that? Like, you, did you have to wait not only because you needed to become a better writer, but also because, you know, you quote unquote needed to become a better person? I hadn't, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think you're right. Like, I, you know, struggled a lot. And then it's been in the last five, six years that things have gotten like stable. And I feel like no longer, like I look back a year and I'm like, oh God, I was crazy a year ago. Um, and so maybe I did need that. Like maybe I did kind of need to be a little bit older and saner and what? like removed from all of that. In well, order I mean, you're in your thirties. Yes. And this is when you're 14 to 16 mm -hmm. that the book is covering. Yeah. So I mean, it's like you got some, you got some distance. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I got sober in 2009 and what they, well, some people will tell you, but kind of what doesn't occur to you until afterwards is like how crazy you can be in like early sobriety. Like you remove that blanket of substances and there's like a wild monster underneath and it when, takes a while to kind of like smooth that thing out. When did I first meet you? Uh, Skylight I remember Brooks. emailing with you at least going back to like 2012. I okay. Think. So post sobriety. Like, yeah. Like I, yeah. Yeah. Post sobriety, but still pretty rocky. Yeah. For sure. So yeah. Like what is that? Like you, you take it off, like the blanket of uh, substances off and I would imagine your senses are all like peaking or, mm -hmm. you know, like at least. Yeah. Like and you have like no coping mechanisms because your coping mechanisms were like, you know, checking out when it came to substances. So you're just like trying to deal with the world and you have no idea how to be a human being in it. So. Well, so you were dealing with uh, bipolar one uh -huh. rapid cycle. It's uh, in my older age. It's definitely not rapid cycling. I think at the time that made sense as a diagnosis, but, um, at least like going back to like my early mid twenties, the periods in between are like six months a year. So not rapid cycling. It's a difficult, I have a friend who like got diagnosed not too long ago. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be 44 tomorrow. Uh huh. Happy uh, birthday. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so it was a later in life diagnosis and the process of trying to find the right medical co medicine cocktail yeah, and to figure out what specific type, you know, you have, it's a big pain in the ass. Yeah. And they don't have like a blood test that tells you, okay, well these, this combination at these doses works. Like the only way you know is by taking them and going off of them and adjusting them. And that process can take years. Um, and you know, really bad things can happen on them too. Like I, you know, in the book based on reality, um, I got suicidal off of the antidepressants, which they didn't even like know about that correlation until years later, like Scott got put on something and was made suicidal by it. Um, and then got off of it pretty quickly, but you know, like they don't, I don't think the general population knows how like risky that can be. And then plus you just have like regular shitty side effects of like fat, like weight gain and, and then like tremors like i remember shaking a lot on different medications and you just feel like a freak because you're like shaking uncontrollably and like weird weird side effects that you wouldn't think of so it's like you just wish that there was some sort of test i didn't get onto like a fully effective tolerable combination of medication until i was 31 so around Damn. yeah that's how long it took yeah and i think like part of it was i didn't know how like awful the medicine was just because i was so out of it on stuff um but like looking back it's like wow that combination of medicine was like horrible and then also not that effective 
Well, it's, you know, it's striking because these medicines are powerful, mm-hmm. especially when you have the cocktail wrong. All yeah. of a sudden you're suicidal. Yeah. That a, that a medicine can make you want to take your own life is a testament to how like intense these things are. Yeah. And then even like, you know, push, put that aside, just like you take a pill and suddenly like you gained like 20 pounds in a month. Uh, that's a pretty intense side effect mm-hmm. on its own. But yet when you get it right, it takes you from being very unwell psychologically or psychiatrically to being able to live your life productively. Yeah. That's one, like the whole healthcare thing just like makes me so angry because I'm pretty cheap. Like I go to the psychiatrist twice a year. I take generic medication. I can contribute to tax dollars, et cetera, contribute to society. But you don't give me those two appointments a year and that generic medication. And like, I'm just a mess. So it's, this seems like a no brainer of just insure these people. Well, you know, and you, you hit on it a little earlier when you were talking about access, you know, when it comes to mental health stuff, like you live in a city like Los Angeles and, um, you know, you see the homeless problem that we have here. Like so much of it is tied to mental health mm-hmm. issues that are untreated people who are left behind people who, you know, lose their jobs, whatever it is that takes people to the street or the mental illness itself makes them unable to function. They just never got the proper support. Yeah. And then things spiral. Well, and there's so many things you don't think of, which is like, it's hard to get appointments and like go to the appointments and, that type of stuff that, you know, they say like go to therapy or something, but what is going to therapy actually look like for someone? Cause like I was able to find a great therapist, a great doctor in West Virginia, but a, I had to like have the knowledge of how to find those. And then B, if I didn't have the job that I have where I teach college, it's a flexible schedule. I, they're both an hour away. Um, so how would I have the time to go see the doctor during office hours? You got you know? Skype. You got yeah. Skype yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is like not as good. I don't yeah. Think. Yeah. Know, I guess it's like better than nothing, but that makes me sad when you're like Skyping with your therapist. Mm-hmm. Some people swear by it. They talk, you know, I guess if you have enough of a, a foundation of a relationship, I can see where maybe it would be fine because you know the person and it's just like having a great phone call. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but if you're just like meeting somebody. Mm-hmm. I would kind of want to lay eyes on the person and yeah. see their office. Yeah, I've never... I had like a phone therapy session when I first moved there, but that's the only tele, teleconferencing, tele-distance. <laughs> Can we do this over yeah. Zoom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I guess like uh, another thing that I want to ask you, I'm still going to get back to your book and like the structure and formation of it, but like uh, you touched upon it talking about... Um, trying to find the right medicine and you write about it in the book, you know, it lead, uh, leads to suicidal ideation and suicidal behaviors. And I think that the rendering of uh, that stuff in the book, like it was particularly affecting for me. I lost a friend to suicide mm-hmm. and it always felt like this, like one of the things that made it such a difficult grief to cope with was that it was so mysterious you know, you don't know like what the, like there was no note or, yeah, I guess there was a note, but I never saw it. Um, and there was no like heads up, you know? Yeah. And so you're left with all these questions and the only person who could possibly answer them is the person who's gone. And the questions are not only like, why'd you do it? And what was wrong? But like, also like you get into these really macabre, like imaginings, like what was going through your mind? Yeah. Like what were those moments? Like, what were you like? And so to see it rendered on the page, it doesn't make it uh, necessarily feel great, but like it 
it does offer some clarification. Well, I also feel like we, like it's very difficult in practice. I've had not close friends, but like tertiary friends who committed suicide. And it really like is disturbing in a way that other deaths aren't. Um, but I do think that mental illness can be a terminal disease. And like often it's difficult for us to like frame it that way of like just the disease got the better of them and killed them. Um, but that's like easier said than done when you're like actually the person who's like your person killed themselves. Right. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think like a, like a metastasis or some sort of like inter internal body disease that like shuts down organs mm -hmm. is easier for people to grok than like a suicide, which always, even though you, like you say, it's a terminal illness, it feels preventable. Yeah. Like, oh, you didn't have to uh, jump or you didn't have to take the gun out or, you know, it feels like so excruciating because uh -huh. you feel like just like if they just would have hung on for one more night. Yeah. Which is often the case. Uh, yeah. But I guess not always. Well, and I had an experience um, where it was medication that was like, it felt like someone like had placed somebody else's like suicidal thoughts in my head. It was really strange. And I knew that they were caused by the medication. I just had to write it out and like kind of push the thoughts away. But it was like so tiring at one point. Like you could understand, I could understand why someone might kill themselves just because it was so exhausting of like kind of constantly pushing away these thoughts of like, oh, I should run my car off the road. Oh, I should slip my wrist. Like these just like really intrusive suicidal thoughts. So like there's, I feel like there's so many specific ways your brain can trick you that you should die. Yeah, that's interesting is like that, that space between the intrusive thinking, like the suicidal thoughts or like, you know, people with OCD can have intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like different ways that it can manifest, but there is, there is space between the intrusive thoughts themselves and like some deeper you, yeah, like some deeper consciousness or recognition of them. And so you can be like, oh, there they are. And it's not necessarily, it sounds like that you believe them. It's that like they might just like wear you out to yes. the point where you just want to shut them off. Yes, exactly. Like that was because it was, I was experienced enough with them to be like, this isn't my head. Like this is some weird chemical thing going on with this medicine. But it's still, even though it felt like separate from me, it still was just like exhausting. And then there was a, another way my brain tricked me was like thinking that if I didn't kill myself, like horrible things would happen to the people that I cared about. Like that seems to be like kind of a common thread with some people is that they think that like they're just like being a burden on their family and loved ones um which you know it's so much more of a burden if the person kills themselves than if they're depressed right it's not clear thinking yeah yeah but your brain tricks you into thinking else other thoughts it seems like uh it seems like similar to the addictive experience the yeah. addiction experience like where the brain can really like you know, what do they call it? The demon? Yeah. Like, I guess they call what they call depression, the noonday demon, but there's different ways that, you know, people, um, describe it or metaphors they use, but it's just like, the point is that it, it can like sort of sneak up on you. Yeah. I mean, I feel like treating my addiction and bipolar disorder have had so many overlaps. I mean, they do have overlaps in terms of like the rate of bipolar people who have substance abuse issues is a big correlation there. But I do think like the similar approach of is good. There's a lot of similarities. Do you think that, uh, like the reason why people who have bipolar disorder tend to have substance abuse issues or often have substance abuse issues, I mean, it's like, it's like you're trying to maybe like you're, you're experiencing, um, the symptoms probably near their onset. Cause a lot of this stuff begins in adolescence 
and you're trying to medicate them on your own, even though that you don't necessarily consciously think of it that way? I think so. But I mean, I think also it's just like a desiring an extreme experience and like wanting to have some sort of control over that extreme experience. Like it just oftentimes it felt like the world was like so flat that I needed to like do something fun. Um, was kind of how I viewed it. I was just like, this is boring. Like, let's get fucked up. Well, and that, but that's the thing though, is that like when you talk to people who get sober, especially in those early days of mm. being sober, it's suddenly like life is so fucking boring. Yeah. Is that, does that go away? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I feel so like grateful for having like such a hard time. Cause I feel like I get like a lot of enjoyment out of like really simple, stupid things that I don't think I would have had if I were neurotypical like what like just like food or like the way the sky looks or like hanging out with my friends like oh this is so great i love this (laughs) and like i don't know if i would like enjoy it so much like i am happy by like really simple little things my dog my house driving to work i really like my drive to work just like what's so great about it well it's like an hour on the interstate and it's usually empty and it goes up and down mountains and it's really beautiful And, like, it's different types of beautiful depending on the time of year. Like, no traffic out there in West Virginia. Yeah, no traffic. And I'm just like, oh, my God, it's so pretty. I love it. And then West Virginia is so different looking than San Diego. So I kind of, like, am easily amused. I want to talk to you about that. But first, I want to get to your book uh, and the construction of it uh, because you mentioned earlier that it took you some time to sort of come to terms with the fact that the thing was going to be what it wanted to be. And you Mm. had to allow that to happen. And the way that it unfolds for people who haven't read is in, I don't know, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but short chapters, vignettes, is that a way to put it? Yeah. Like these snapshots, but like, you know, I think books like that can sometimes trick people into thinking that they're easier to create than they actually are. I think sequencing is a huge part of it because you do have to create some sense of narrative drive and, um, yeah. Yeah. You have to put them in the right order and like make them feed into each other. So sometimes it felt like there are just like so many pieces. It's like how to make them have a relationship. Right. So from a composition standpoint, like when you started in earnest to write this book, like what did the, uh, what did the day-to-day routine look like? Did you have one? I don't really have a routine because I feel kind of like bipolar even in my work habits. Like I'll get like really obsessed with it and just like spend any time I can find on it or I won't write for that long um, for a while. Um, so I don't really have a routine, but like I'll f- like build a routine depending on like my class schedule that semester or something like that. Um but I feel like a fair amount of it was written in a couple different like Christmas breaks of me just being like really obsessive and spending long days. But generally it was kind of like a more slow and steady type of deal. Christmas is like, I, I get like so moody around Christmas yeah. for some reason. It seems like a good time to write. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I hate winter. Like that's one of the harder things about living on the East coast. If you want to call West Virginia the East coast. Um, but I do think it makes me really productive, especially since I got my sad lamp. I love my sad lamp. What does it give you? Some like some more lux, some more light? Is that? Weird? Yeah, I got it off Amazon for like forty bucks, and it worked really well no, on that, like that... my seasonal, like it's I don't even know if it's seasonal depression, but it's just like seasonal doldrums. No, I, I'm actually 
the perfect person to talk to about this because I've been um, reading a ton about sleep uh-huh. and sleep products. And like, there is something to that. Yeah. So if you're in like a really hardcore winter environment or even like a winter environment where it's like low light gray, you know, the, tr- the leaves are all down, um, just turning on, uh, a, like an extra, having extra light exposure can have like a genuine impact on your mood. I was like shocked how effective it was. Cause it was like, Oh, all I have to do is sit in front of this thing for like 20 minutes. And suddenly I'm not like mopey. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, so you, uh, are working like whenever you can, I guess over these two Christmas breaks. And when you say you were letting it be whatever it wanted to be, I'm imagining that you were kind of like just following whatever thread or memory or, you know, narrative element occurred to you with an eye on getting the sequence right later, or were you sequencing as you went? Scott gave me a really good metaphor of like building a necklace and first you do the beads and then you string it together later. And so that's kind of what I thought about was like, okay, I have this like anecdote that I want to put in the book. Let me write about it. Like not care if it's like true or not. Um, and just write it down. And then set it aside and then kind of worry about the shape of it later. And so, I mean, I did a lot of, like, the initial rough draft of the book looks very different than it turned out to be. Um, so there was, like, a lot of editing and, like, rehauling and throwing things away and making new things. And, um, re- and resequencing. Yeah, yeah, and moving things around and, you know, the kind of, like, small minutia of, like, oh, I didn't introduce that character yet because I moved it over here, so I got it, like, put something there that makes sense like that type of thing so and uh how long did it take you like i mean i know there was those two christmas breaks that were really intensive Um, but like the first draft took you i started on in like fall 2015 is when it's finally started to kind of click and then i finished the first draft in winter 2016 that's pretty quick yeah yeah at the time it didn't feel quick but well, yeah, and you've also been working, I mean, in, in your head and in previous drafts that were abandoned, you've mm-hmm. been working on it longer than that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm pretty efficient when I get into the groove of the writing. Like how many words would you get in a session? Do you I know? don't keep track of that type of thing. What do, and, you, what do you write in? Do you write in Word? Yeah, I write in Word. Yeah. And I like start out with like just not caring at all if it's good or bad or makes any sense you don't you don't like obsessively like edit yourself as you no, go. no 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 i can't do that That's... so is it all I, mean, I don't mean to like i don't i hope it isn't boring but no, this, it's this, not boring stuff, me. this stuff actually fascinates me because um especially with a book that is kind of a mosaic um you know this stuff matters like mm-hmm. you write one of these chapters or vignettes or whatever it is like a memory that you wanted to fictionalize is it all in one big document or do you make that an isolated thing and like shunt it away and then start a brand new document? New documents. I have like a very complicated folder on my computer of documents related to this book and like folders within folders. Okay. That makes sense to me though, because if it's all in one big document, then I think you run the risk of rereading and getting tripped up on all the stuff you did previously. And then you can start to noodle with stuff and fuck it up. And Well, and then also like spreading out the sections on the floor of my basement and like figuring out how to put them together that way of like, okay, here's this section. Where can I put this? Like that type of thing. And then I also had a really weird drawing that doesn't make any sense to anyone but me of like what it would look like structurally. That was kind of like a, what is it? A cardiogram, a heartbeat thing. Yeah. And then it like made like a loop at the end. 
<laughs> and had like dots. And well, so it doesn't make any sense, but it made sense to me of like, how do I like get these sections to like do that shape? That, that, but I mean, like, look, you're the only person it has to make sense. Yeah, exactly. So it's helpful for me, but like, I don't think expect it to make sense to anyone else. So just to describe it, it's like a bunch of like up and down sort of like EKG lines. Yeah. Yeah. And then a loop-de-loop at the end. Yeah. With dots. And then an ellipsis. With like, I don't know, kind of like, like stardust. Yeah. Dots. <laughs> I, no, but I want to say I talked <laughs> fairy dust, yeah. sprinkles. I, uh, I want to say I talked to Ben Laurie years ago, the first time he was on this show, and he was like graphing and charting mm-hmm. his stories in this really personal way. And like, meaning that it was just for him. You know, he wasn't, there was no use for them other than to just help him think through his stuff. And like, I, I think that's great because you're sitting there. You know, when you're deep into a book or a story, you're so lost in the world of words mm-hmm. that like to suddenly try to make things like pictographic or visual as a counterpoint or just like another way of thinking about it. Maybe you're using a different part of your brain. Yeah. Like I see a logic there. Yeah. I did also like spreadsheets. I had a notebook that I just kind of like wrote things down and like that type of notes. The spreadsheets weren't that effective, but I still think that they were good to do. And I also am like a kind of like detail person who likes spreadsheets um so i did like a lot of different things in terms of trying to kind of like keep track of stuff did it ever did did you ever get it to a point during the writing process of this book where you were like fuck it's over i'm gonna abandon it um i mean i felt that like i felt like i didn't know what i was doing i felt like i don't know if i'm ever gonna finish this i don't know if i'm capable of this like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, but I think I have enough writer friends to, like, know that that's, like, normal. To just, like, totally question yourself. Well, you live with one, too. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like, I can do this. I kind of like psyching myself up sometimes. Um, and, you know, there's, like, times where I was just, like, paralyzed by, like, fear that I couldn't do it. But just, like, coaching myself. Like, you can do this. I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> just doing push-ups. Yeah. Listening yeah. to music. <laughs> Yeah, music's helpful for me, especially like if I'm feeling kind of like, I don't know, weak that day. I think too, like music can be, uh, it can get you like tonally adjusted Mm -hmm. or mood adjusted, I guess. Like whatever, like if you listen to music that feels like it is um, in accord with like the, the tone or the mood of the book seems like it can put you in that place if you're not there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I listened to like a lot of music that was felt like I was like helping me reach for something. Was it stuff that like you listened to back during this time in your life? Like where you get like, it was a nostalgia music. I mean, at some point I was like, I was listening to like Metallica and just kind of going through like different nineties playlists and nine inch nails. But most of the music I listened to in the nineties was bad because I didn't know anything better because we didn't have the internet yet. Um, I didn't have a cool big brother or sister. So can but, I stop you here? Yeah, Just yeah. Because like, <laughs> I was thinking about this the other night. Like, I go on these dog walks. I don't know if you've seen these tweets. I feel like they're so annoying. But like, I'll take take my dog for a walk, and I'll be listening to uh, Spotify, and I'll just try to find playlists. You know, like I'm trying to like find music to listen to, and it's maddening because I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I'll like go find a playlist, and I'll start to scroll through it, and I'll be like, I don't know any of this music. And like, I, for some reason, like, I, I don't want to be one of these old people who like, doesn't have any like openness to new stuff, but only wants to listen to stuff they know. But somehow like you sort of want when you're listening to music to like know the music. 
Well, when I was like younger, I spent a lot of time on like seeking out new bands, but I think I'm starting to become one of those like old people who just like listens to the music of their youth over and over again. But I like, I mean, there's some new bands that I like a lot, but a lot of it, I'm just like, there's no songs here. Like, I don't understand how this is a pop hit when it's like not catchy. Like, I want my pop hits to get stuck in my head. Right. And I just don't understand kids these days. It's how, you know, and I think this is, it's, it's always been thus. Like, I think this is just what happens. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's how I can tell that I'm getting a little bit older because I don't understand popular culture. But yeah, I mean, like, I remember there was like a day and this was, sadly, this was like a while ago, but I was always like a subscriber to Rolling Stone, which like marks me as like Generation X. But Mm -hmm. like, you know, when I was like in late high school to like all through college, I always got Rolling Stone. Um, and then there was a day like in my early to mid thirties where like the Rolling Stone came and I looked at the cover and I was like, I have no idea who the fuck this is. Well, also Rolling Stone <laughs> isn't as good as it used to be. Well, like, not, I just feel like that's a fact. Yeah. None that, of the magazines are, Yeah, you know, like print magazines. It's like, there's, there's a couple hanging on that are, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of mourn it cause I love a good magazine. Yeah, me too. I used to, cause I... Um, the cusp of millennial and generation X. So I grew up reading like spin and rolling stone and thinking they were so cool. And now it just seems like everyone is like trying to sell you some like Hollywood person's daughter. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good way to put it though. Like, my God, it's like, yeah, I just feel like the, if you've got some kind of family connection, like the system is just looking for that Uh adorable spawn. Yeah. Easy to market. Everybody's like got a, like a, like a pre- it's like you're pre-wired to like be curious about the person, mm-hmm. right? I like Billie Eilish. I mean, she feels like she's being sold to me, but like at least she's like seems cool because a lot of the pop stars and like that doesn't even like if I was a teen, I wouldn't think that person was cool. I don't think there's like nothing dangerous about them. So I like Billie Eilish because at least she like had like bugs in her music video, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> 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 I just wish I was better at like tuning in like when i was a kid i didn't know what the fuck i was doing i was also like living in a fairly culturally isolated place in indiana Mm -hmm. like we had access to some stuff but it was pre-internet so like things weren't as fluid you know like every like the trends that happened on the coasts didn't get to indiana till like a few years later yeah like really you know and like nowadays everything's just like immediate because we're all sort of in in some sense tuned into the same stuff fairly rapidly um but I was like very into like 60s culture. Me too. I was obsessed with it, especially like ninth, beginning of 10th. And then I think I started doing ecstasy and that got me more into contemporary music. Ecstasy is really bad for your musical taste. Um, But like ninth grade, I was obsessed with 60s culture and 60s music. I still like it. Uh, Me too. Ecstasy is a rough hangover. Yeah, it is. Can't be good for your brain. No, I don't think it is. I used to get really depressed too after I take it. Yeah. Like I'd wake up, like the hangover would be like, it wasn't just like, oh, I feel like shit. Let's go get brunch. It was more like. Existential despair. Your body hurts. Like your jaw hurts. Yeah. That's not a good sign when a pill does that to you. And then it made me listen to bad music. So also not a good. Like, like you go to like a rave or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like bad electronica and that type of thing. I was listening to Bad Electronica at the coffee shop maybe yesterday or the day before just to like drown out the, you know, the noise and to be able to focus. Yeah. And so I don't want singing because I get hooked onto the singing and the lyrics. It distracts me. So I was like, I just want electronic music that's just going to like, you know, beat in my head and just like put me into some kind of trance. But then like I started to be like 
this feel it makes the whole world feel absurd mm-hmm. this music takes itself so seriously it's like yeah you know that was the feeling i got i was like god this is so fucking intense like chill the fuck out like the insistence of it you yeah know? i can't do it yeah i don't even know what contemporary like electronic music sounds like they don't call it techno anymore which is what they called it in the 90s that's right yeah now it's like uh, edm is that what it is I don't know what EDM really means. I know what the words stand for, but I don't know what EDM sounds like. I just know it's a thing. I wouldn't know. Yeah. I'm t- I think like what happens is that you just get into a different phase of your life and most likely you're focused on like breadwinning, some sort of career advancement, maybe family, marriage, and you just don't have the time anymore. Yeah. Cause I used to spend a lot of time on like this was like Napster audio galaxy days of like reading about music and then downloading music and listening to that music and finding what I liked. And now I don't have the desire or time or the time. Yeah. To and, do that. And then the other thing too, is that it was such a part of the social fabric, uh-huh. like going to see bands and which music you listen to, not only like going to like the live music experience or some sort of like rave or something, but also just like the shared listening experience at like a house party Mm -hmm. it's like so impactful and then there's all the whole you know the adolescent young hormonal like the music just it impacts you more yeah yeah and i used to go see a lot of uh different bands and shows and that type of thing and i don't have the well i you can't in beckley um but i don't want to stand in a crowd of people anymore like listening to loud things (laughs) i'm too old for that shit (laughs) but at the time i would like go like multiple times a week to go see some band somewhere what was your favorite oh shit i remember seeing the black lips a couple times like once in tijuana and once at the casbah in san diego i don't know if you know what i'm talking about or if anyone does but they were like amazing and like the black lips yeah and they're just like like just felt the reason why you go see a live show just kind of like messy and exciting listen it can be like i don't do it enough or very much, but like if you go to a good show and it's not like too crazy crowded and loud, um, like go to the Hollywood bowl or go to a theater, uh, and to be with a group of people in a communal setting for a live music and singing experience can be like soul nourishing. Yeah. Like church, like church. Yeah. And I think even like going to a movie, something about just like a communal art experience where you're with other bodies. Yeah. And you're not like, like, you know, in your, in your hovel. You yeah. Know? We saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a couple of days ago at the theater and all the women in the audience made like noises when Brad Pitt took his shirt off. <laughs> and I was like, this is what you don't get when you watch the movie at home. It's- well, yeah. I mean that. And then like, if you see a comedy or if there's a comedic scene in a drama, you know, um, it's way funnier. Uh-huh. You see a horror movie, it's like way scarier yeah. when you're with people and like it gives it an extra charge. When you're not looking at your phone either. Right. So. Did you like Once Upon a Time? Yeah, but I don't, but you know, people don't like Quentin Tarantino anymore and uh, I don't really care. Like I think, like I want to see movies that have some sort of like teeth to them, even if those teeth are bad. I mean, so you I don't really definitely care. got like an unusual and troubled worldview yeah i would argue but like he's makes interesting films i think on a on a broader level i'm just happy to see uh, a film with teeth made for adults that's original that's original do well And and like i think he's fun too like his movies are just fun and isn't that why i mean sometimes you watch movies to 
have like an art experience or whatever but like you want to have fun you want to be entertained he loves the movies yeah you can't argue that like the guy has seen every fucking movie He's like the book nerd who's yeah. like, he's like Scott. <laughs> yeah. Like Scott is like one, I, there is like a small subset of people that I've interviewed for this show who are like, I call them like the Uber book nerds. Yeah. Like I thought I liked books a lot. And then I married Scott and realized I like books like a very, like more than the average person, but a normal amount. And he's just like completely deranged by books. Just like, yeah. I mean, like can't like just choose through them, uh-huh. has read everything, like can quote them, you know? And it's like, there's like almost no corner of literature that they have not explored yeah and i'm envious yeah i wish i had like that insatiability but like i have a hard time finding books that really that i can finish but i also don't because like i have all sorts of hobbies and scott likes movies and books and that's about it what are your hobbies besides the narrative outdoors stuff hiking type deals i like gardening i like doing stuff around the house i like cooking i like baking i like exercise i could go on but that's a good sampling i'm not a baker i don't dislike cooking i'm just not good at it oh i haven't like gotten the schooling that i need but hiking i'm with you i'm actually getting into gardening which is another haunting sign of advancing age (laughs) but i think it's also like that's one thing that's kind of frustrating is i'll like get into something and then later it'll be trendy i think gardening is like having a moment right now is it i feel like it because i keep on seeing all these like instagram kids advertising like artistically framed plant things oh really well i'm I'm not on insta so i wasn't even influenced (laughs) i'm doing this totally unilaterally but i have this yard and like i like getting pots and like bringing new plants in just to beautify our space i spend a lot of time here i work here i live here i'm constantly here so it's like i'm gonna get some fucking plants well and it's like really corny but it's cool to like make something like you give this thing water and take a little bit of care of it, and then it's giving you a free vegetable or what feels like a free vegetable. That's right. cool. I'm like obsessing over my tangerine tree. I feel like it's not quite healthy enough right now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm know. having problems with my tomato plant. Oh, this really? is garden <laughs> chat time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can trade, uh, we can DM about our plant yeah. troubles. Um, but I want to ask you uh, about this move to. Uh, West Virginia from Southern California. Cause that's a, that not only is it a big geographic uh, shift in terms of distance, but it's also like a contextual shift that I think is about as, as uh, strong as you could imagine in the continental United States. For sure. Yeah. It's... Like going from Del Mar to Beckley, uh-huh. those, those places don't have a ton in common. No, not at all. Like, like they're both physically beautiful, but the physical beauty is like completely different. That's the only two things they have in common or the only thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. I'm shocked, pleasantly shocked at how much I love living there just because I was, like, really concerned for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what am, how am I going to do? Like, And then I also don't think I fully realized, like, Scott would, like, say stuff about how it was a completely different culture and I didn't really believe him. Like, I'd visited before and I was just like, whatever, it's the same year, the same country, you can't be that different. And then I moved there and I realized that, yes, the culture is very different. How so? I mean, it's just like even the things you hear people talking about are different. Um, And like, I think values are different, too. Like, I think it's much more family community based in West Virginia. And like, I mean, I feel like it's stereotyped to say, but I do feel like people have a big relationship to like the land that they grew up on or their neighborhood or something in a way that. 
Like I feel like grow- my family's, my dad's side of the family's gone back to California several d- generations. Our roots are in here. And I feel like they're kind of rootless. Like there is like sort of no culture or traditions or like um, – so I think that's the positive stereotype of small towns is their community and family base. I but gonna, I do find truth in that. I was going to say, you're, I'm like, you're selling me on it. Cause <laughs> I, I feel, I feel a lack of that. Yeah. I've lived in Los Angeles for almost 20 years and I feel like I'm passing through. Mm-hmm. Like I feel some sense of connection here. I guess this is my home. I feel happy when I get back to the airport after being away, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that you're like, Oh, we're back home, you know? So there's some of that, but like connection to the community it's such a disconnected place. Yeah. I'm so hungry for like a sense of like, I know my neighbors and like, we're all buddies and like, let's have a beer. And like, you don't get that. Yeah. You know, you just don't get it. And I guess maybe I could start it, but I'm like, what if my neighbors are creepy? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or they're, I don't know. I have like no patience for Southern California annoyances, like everyday annoyances. I'd much rather be annoyed by West Virginia daily annoyances, like on the, Last night we got in from the airport. We went to my favorite taco place and I like wanted to murder the people standing in front of us for no good reason. They were just talking about like horchata flavored vodka. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you and your cargo shorts. <laughs> right. And Maybe. I don't get that impatient with people in West Virginia. I get annoyed, but like regular annoyed. What about like pace of life issues? Because like I think... Maybe a way to um, tie it to writing is that I always imagine if you live someplace that's slower, more um, like out in the country, away from the craziness of an urban environment, you would have like, you know, more time. Maybe yeah. time time moves more slowly. I'm imagining that you feel like you have maybe more like psychic room to be creative because you're not in this like hive of like ambitious striver, creative media people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've never understood when people say that things move fast or slow in terms of time, but I do definitely feel like I have more time to think. Like you're not sitting in traffic. You're just kind of spacing out as you go on your road. You're not like getting jostled by people on the street, like when you walk down the street. Um, And then also money, like you're not struggling to pay rent. Like we live in like a pretty spacious house where Scott and I each have our own room to work, which I wouldn't have been able to afford if I were living in a city. So it's very helpful. I always thought I was a city person, but I'm much happier in West Virginia than I was in California or New York. Have you picked up any like West Virginia, like are the things you're doing now in your life that you never thought you would do? Like do you? Gardening. Sure. Um, I mean, like, hanging out with, like, Scott's parents and kids and, like, having a real good time just sitting around the house, that type of thing. Um, But mostly it's not that surprising. And then what about living with and being married to another writer who's, like, pretty kind of, you guys are both all in. You know, Mm -hmm. you're both, like, you're right, like, what's the way that, uh, I think William Burroughs used to describe Jack Kerouac as, like, a capital R writer. I feel like both, like meaning like he's all in, Yeah, uh, you both are doing it. I, is I, there, is it good? Do you, do you find that like you guys have like, been able to realize some kind of like symbiosis where you feed each other and help each other's work or is there ever like competition or like tension between like who has time to write and whose shift it is to do other things? Like, do you have to navigate all that? I mean, it's pretty good. Like I Wonder would be like if both of our books like came out at the same time, but like when Scott's book came out, I was like really excited for him and he's real excited for me. And I do think it's useful because 
Like, we'll be talking about something that I think no other type of person would understand, like the types of things that you're stressed out about that are completely imaginary and in your head, because literally they are. Um, and the other person will be able to kind of help you through that and then also have the patience for that. And then for both of us, it's a lot of like repetitive, like, it's okay. Things are fine. You know what you're doing. Like Scott has been repeating the same shit over his book like multiple times. And I like made an audio file for him to listen to that he doesn't listen to because I just felt like I was saying the same stuff over and over. But he does the same thing for me. Like, he had to deal with so many, like, obsessive moments in this book of, like, me thinking about the same stuff. Like, where you were getting stuck at a juncture? Or, or... just, like, worried about the same thing over and over again. What, um, was a, what was a worry? What was a worry? Well, in terms of production, I was, like, freaking out over the cover. Um, but It's then, a great cover. Well, the first one is, was not good. I'm like, oh. I had, like, problems. Um, and then in terms of writing the book, like, just, like... Do I know what I'm doing? And then, like, feeling like it would be too much this way or too stupid. Like, I feel like people don't take teenage girls seriously and, like, kind of buying into that obsession of, like, is this dumb of me to be writing about a teenage girl? Like, things that if it weren't weren't me, I'd be like, shut up. Like, don't buy into that silly right. self-doubt. Um, but when it's you. And then Scott's kind of going through the same thing um, of, like... Oh, people have written this type of book before. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it's like, shut up. Just write the thing. He's like, working on another one? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know what you're doing. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And yeah. there's always room on the shelf for another book. Yeah. It's not like a finite space, you know? Like, well, and there's so many books about whatever topic it is you're writing about. Right. Like, don't worry about that type of thing. Um, did you... Like, was there anxiety around disclosure? Like, the amount of revelation... Even though it's a novel, you know, I think you name the character Juliet, you know, like there's like some degree of like, this is me, like, or at least acknowledgement of overlap. Yeah. Did you have any, do you struggle with that? Like I like disclosure, people I, knowing stuff. I feel like I would be like, Juliet Escoria is not my real name. So like, I don't teach under that name. And when I go to the doctor, that's not my name. Um, so it's nice to have that separation. Um, but I feel like just my other two books, I got some like preview to what that's like, and it feels scary and gross, but also kind of good. And you're just like, whatever, like people already know the shit that normally I'd like try to not talk about. So if I bring up some inappropriate thing in small talk, like they already know it, right, right. <laughs> so, kind of good in that way. Do you feel a sense of... Uh, there's got to be a sense of relief that any book is done. It's mm -hmm. always nice to be like, oh, I got it out of me. But with this one, like having laid it down, it's gotten a great reception. You have to feel some sense of triumph. Yeah. But I mean, it's so weird. It's, I guess I kind of feel like most people are like this, but me maybe especially, but just the you do this thing that you really wanted to do and then it happens and then you don't you're not just happy. Like I felt like sad because it was like I was saying goodbye to this thing that was like my little baby and then scared and like, fuck, what am I going to do next? And right. like, like every book I've written, I've been paralyzed with the fear for at least like a month or two of like, I'm never going to write anything ever again. Like clearly that's the last book. Um, so that fear. Um, Isn't it weird that like you're going through it and it's like a huge pain. It's kind of a grind. It's grueling doing the work there's a lot of failure involved that feeling of persistence having to overcome self-doubt 
And then finally, like you get it to where you need to get it and somebody agrees to print it and you're like, holy shit. And then you go through the run up to publication and there's all that anxiety and excitement. And then the thing goes out and then the, you know, the reviews are great and people are like gushing about it and you're hearing from readers, I'm sure. And what you're really nostalgic for in the end is the actual doing of the thing. And that's what I tried to remember too. Cause I look back to like the time when I was writing Black Cloud and like that just felt like at least in retrospect, like really kind of like a special fun time of my life. Um, and I kept on trying to remind myself of that when I was going through the, what felt like a very long process. This is the good stuff. Yeah. Like this, this is, is the good part. This is why I write. I don't like publishing has some good elements to it for sure. But like why I write is because I like writing like that little world you create around yourself. And the publishing is the part that feels bad sometimes. It's and like, like even when you get what you want, you're like uncomfortable. Well, it's a good lesson. Yeah. It's, for some reason, hard to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why do you write? Because you like it, or at least you like it sometimes. Or you need to get, you need to get something off your chest. Yeah. Like, you know, like that's, I think about this, like that persistence of like, I gotta, like, cause it, it's not, you can't, it's hard to use the word fun. I guess some people are, I've talked to some people in here who are like, writing's fun for me. Writing's occasionally like really fun. I think it's like kind of chasing a high where it's just like, sometimes you have that day and like things just feel amazing and it's like better than anything else you could possibly do. And so you're like constantly on this hunt for that day when That's most right. days you're like, fuck, I hate this. Like I'm a piece <laughs> of shit. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time. Right. So. So what are you going to do next? Do I'm know? doing stories. You are? I have like another novel that I feel the need to write, um, but I need a break. Do you have a hint like what it's about? Like is the it? The other novel? Yeah. The, I had like a manic episode that was medication induced when I was like how four years sober is doing everything I was supposed to be doing. And I had like this horrible manic episode and that's going to be kind of like the crux of the story. Um, but I might. I don't know where I'm going to start. It's going to take a while to write because I don't even know like the timeline, but it might start like this horrible breakup. I went when I was living in New York and kind of like leaving New York and my life dissolving around me. And then it might end up in West Virginia, but I don't know. I just know that I want to write about having a manic episode when you're doing everything that the doctor wants you to do. Hey. Yeah. Curveball. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I guess last question I would ask you, just occurred to me is that like, as you know, you're writerly, you've known you wanted to write and have been writing for a long time. And, uh, through, you know, dealing with mental illness to dealing with substance abuse and getting sober all the way through your adult life. Um, do you document your life in a careful way? Like, cause like this book, I know some of it is fabricated, like the, you know, the doctor's notes and diary entries and stuff it's i think people assume they're real yeah. but they're not all no but it, it makes used, me makes I, me wonder if you're somebody who keeps diaries and saves receipts and like tries to make sure you have the info accessible for use at a later date no i mean i every year i buy like a you know like a daily planner and i intend to like write down what i do each day and usually i make it till like february and then i don't do that anymore and like this you can, year, you can I, write a novel called January. Yeah, I've been a little bit better at like, you know, maybe I'll do it for a couple of days here and there. Um, but my memory is really bad, like short term memory. Like who knows if that's just me or drugs or psych medicine, but it's just not good. 
Um, but I kind of have faith that the important stuff I will remember, like the day-to-day stuff. What I was doing on Tuesday the 9th, I have no fucking clue. But yeah, like, I can remember like what it felt like, and that's the important thing, and I can make up the rest. So, no. I would like to document more. Scott and I did like a marriage diary for the first year we were married, and we'd like take notes and then argue over the notes. Um, and I'd like to do that again, but it just takes a lot of time. That could be a book. Yeah, that's what we were thinking, was we were thinking it would be like a marriage diary book. But I don't know if I want to do that. I think it would be bad for our marriage just because <laughs> two, like we're both very controlling about our work. And like I think I'd it would cause like marital problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, self-knowledge is key. Yeah. You know? It's good to know. Um, it's uh, it's great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see I, you too. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, yeah. I appreciate you. Like, you know, I know you're traveling and tired and all that kind of stuff, but I appreciate you coming up here and um, I congratulate you again on your excellent book. Thank you so much, Brad. Okay. That is Juliet Escoria. Her book, her novel is called Juliet the Maniac. It is available from Melville House. Go get your copy right now. You can track Juliet down on the internet at julietescoria.com. She's also on Twitter where her handle is at Juliet Escoria, if I have that correct. Juliet the Maniac, available now from Melville House. Go get your copy immediately. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band uh, Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to David Berman and company. Uh, I pulled the track from Purple Mountains called All My Happiness Is Gone there at the top. Uh, and then this uh, that you hear right now is called The Silver Pageant. It's a Silver Juice track from the album Starlight Walker. If you want to uh, support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the app, the uh, official Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. Okay, so uh, why don't we close? I'm going to close with one of my favorite uh, Silver Juice songs that I used to listen to uh, back in the day all the time. It's called Room Games and Diamond Rain. I hope it's okay. Don't sue me, whoever you are. I'm just uh, just paying tribute. That's all. Here's David Berman, Silver Juice, Room Games and Diamond Rain. I'll talk to you guys next week. I'm gonna love you for a hundred years Through suffering and celebration, dear Cause only you can make my lies come true You can make lies real Like drinking wine in the shade all afternoon You keep finding and reminding me That you only can be kind to me When you got with me You started dreaming my dreams But darling, there's a gun in the garland 
Uh-huh. 